You are listening to CX Insider, conversations on customer experience presented by SailMove. I'm Jeffrey Mack, Director of Marketing at SailMove, and welcome to CX Insider, SailMove's podcast on customer experience. While the name of our podcast has changed for 2018, the amazing conversations we'll be having with customer experience thought leaders hasn't. Today, our CEO Dan McKayley speaks to Ernan Roman, president of ERDM, a customer experience company that specializes in voice of the customer studies. In this episode, we'll talk to Ernan about leveraging the voice of the customer to improve the customer experience. In particular, we'll spend time digging into Ernan's work with MassMutual and how their customers actually ended up influencing their marketing. We'll also examine the gap between what customers expect and what brands deliver. So without further ado, here's Dan and Ernan. Welcome to another episode of CX Insider, conversations on customer experience. In each episode, we speak to a senior business leader whose role touches on the customer experience, and we dive deep into specific projects or tactics that they have employed to improve it. So today, our guest is Ernan Roman. Ernan is the president of Northern ERDM Corp, a customer experience agency that specializes in voice of the customer relationship research, and they are headquartered right here in New York. So welcome, Ernan. Dan, uh, thank you for the invite and delighted to be part of this uh, thought leader idea exchange with you. Absolutely. We're, we're really excited to have you. Uh, I've been a follower of your work. So can you please tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? Tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, our firm conducts uh, very specialized, deep, qualitative voice of customer research to understand the customer experience expectations of the customers or prospects of major brands. And then we take those learnings and insights to develop customer experience strategies and action plans for our clients and um, have had the honor of being inducted into the DMA uh, Marketing Hall of Fame due to the results that our voice of customer research-based strategies have achieved for clients such as Microsoft, MassMutual, IBM, Gilt, and QVC. And um, it's the learnings from the VOC research, thousands of hours of uh, one-hour-long interviews that we conduct that I want to share in the course of our conversation today, Dan, to help your audience understand directly from the voice of the customer what key insights or shortcomings are being perceived by customers and prospects of B2B and B2C brands. Yeah, no, and congratulations on congratulations on your accolades and your accomplishments. Uh, I, I'm very curious to dive in today into uh, specifically some of those interview tactics and questions that you use, and to learn more about your methodology. Uh, so, before we, we we dive into specific voice of the customer topics, can you tell us, Ernan, how do you define customer experience? Great question. Our definition keeps evolving as we conduct more and more uh, interviews with customers in the B2B and the B2C space. And at this point in time, I would say that 
my VOC-based definition of customer experience would be that it to be scalable, to be sustainable, and to be effective, it must be a holistic, company-wide, integrated obsession with improving the customer experience across the entire life cycle of the customer. And we've learned seven critical points where customers want value-added engagement. But the point being that it is this obsessive focus on improving the customer experience across the customer's journey and life cycle. And in order for this to be successful and scalable and replicatable, the company must put in place the process, the correct metrics, which are customer experience metrics versus the traditional hunt and kill and generate uh, new sales metrics, the people, and last of all, the technology. So that is the way that I would define customer experience, and those are the critical components that we see in the course of our work with these Fortune brands in terms of ensuring sustainability and scalability. And I guess I would just emphasize, Dan, as the final point, that technology is the last consideration. It is absolutely not the first consideration. So people process technology uh, that all come together to determine how the customer actually engages with that particular business in some way. And I guess two tweaks to that. Number one, metrics is part of those requirements, the right right metrics. And then also being sure that as much emphasis is placed on how the customer engages with and really looking at also how the company engages with the customer as they evolve through the life cycle and the life journey. Yeah, absolutely. Bidirectional. And I think that the metrics that you're referring to are, are really the, the, the fuel that allows you to continually evolve that experience, right? I mean, if you want to be metrics driven and uh, in order to, you want to be metrics driven in order to develop the best strategies and iterate on, on the processes that are being, being put in place. Absolutely. And you have to measure the right behaviors. If you keep generating acquisition or if you keep focusing, Dan, on acquisition metrics, then you're going to perpetuate the hunt and kill behavior of American business if, however, the metrics are expanded beyond acquisition to retention and repeat and, you know, cross-product purchases and exploration of new products or new services or ongoing engagement with the website, with email, with content, um, etc. Those then force a very different behavior because you're not just, you know, bringing in the kill and then moving on to the next kill. You're saying, great, yeah, I have to hunt, but now I need to absolutely cultivate the relationship and focus on the renewal, the retention, and also, very importantly, the delivery of such a high-value customer experience that you might have started with the red uh, bubble that we offer, but we've made that experience so good that it's logical for you to now move to the blue one and the green one because we offer such a holistic integrated customer experience and our stuff is good and you are interested in moving to the other facets of our product line. 
That's a great point. And so in, in thinking about this informational layer of customer experience, I think that's a great transition into the voice of the customer, right? How do we develop those, that metrics focus? How do we find the right metrics to, 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 um, emphasize and then how how at the, throughout the life cycle of the customer and throughout the journey of the customer how are we collecting the right information so i think that's a great segue into voice of the customer can you tell us a little bit about that concept yeah great that's a great transition dan um so voice of the customer most broadly defined is any vehicle instrument methodology that is helping the customer, excuse me, that is helping the company or educating the company relative to the customer's ongoing needs, expectations, and then also how the company is performing in meeting those. So if you will, on the um, quickie uh, end of the spectrum, you've got little dashboard indicators, like an NPS score, like a SAT score, uh, like a 4C, which, which are helpful indicators on the dashboard. You know, it's a temperature gauge, it's a pressure gauge, it's a whatever, and it's telling you the number. And the number is an important indicator, but it is clearly a top-line and, and often superficial indicator because it's telling you how many my score is X. Mm-hmm. But what it does not get into is now moving more to the other side of the spectrum where we focus, which was the, the deep, in-depth understanding, which is also why we've evolved to an hour-long telephone interview. Our interviews are conducted by our team of former CMOs, so we take it all the way to the max in terms of the depth of time, the depth of conversation conducted by a marketing executive. And what we're trying to understand is... Why do you feel that way? So the why, and then very importantly, how should it be fixed? So that's why we feel a iterative, in-depth conversation with a customer helps us truly understand why you are feeling this way. What is causing the, the, the chasm between your expectation and the actual reality? And then what do you want to be done to fix it, given your perception of that company and brand, given your expectation of that product or service solution, and also given who you are as a consumer in your very complex life cycle or who you are as a company executive or middle manager or whatever. So that is the spectrum, and that broad rainbow of tools and resources ought to be used. Also in there, Dan, is the beauty of a call center. Call center has an incredible daily interaction with customers. Frontline, yeah. One of the, and, and, you know, either it's a chat or whether it's a phone, that is one of the biggest wasted opportunities that marketers have to capture real-time qualitative data, quantitative data. What are the most frequently encountered objections? Uh, we're losing a sale because of the most frequently cited problems, concerns, etc. are, or these are the most vehemently stated words that I've heard today. That is gold for free coming out of your chat or call center experiences every day and companies just blow it away. They don't capture it or they don't analyze it or they don't circulate it to other departments like marketing and product. I couldn't so agree more with you, Dan. That, mm-hmm. And so, Dan, all of that is the holistic approach to voice of customer and the different methodologies. 
Right. And I think, you know, just to touch on the last point that you made there in terms of the contact center, I think just as you were saying that customer experience is a bi-directional function, yeah. this is, it's a bi-directional function when it comes to the contact center as well, right? There, that's an opportunity to collect information, the voice of the customer, but it's also an opportunity to market to the customer. And I think that that's a huge missed opportunity for a lot of businesses. Uh, one thing that I was, one thing that I was thinking as you were talking about this data that's being collected, it's, it's sort of, you know, there's so much quantitative data, but there's also a lot, there's a vast amount of qualitative data that's being collected here, right? How do you make sense of all of that qualitative information? (laughs) I'm so curious to understand. I mean, that ties back to the methodology that you're using for your interviews and, uh, what kind of questions you're asking, but what is, what is, how do you think about the 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 breadth of information that you're collecting because again it ties back to how you plan these conversations with the customer in order to collect the best information and then make sense of it. Great, great question, Dan. I, I, I sigh because we have tried a number of solutions. There, there's technology. There's text scanning. There's technology to to read. Uh, most frequently re- repeated words, et cetera, from the recordings. And um, none of them have worked, ha- satisfy what we are looking for. And so, again, what's the goal? The goal is a deep understanding of how you feel, why you feel that way, and in because of the actionability of this research, what do you want done across all the myriad facets of product, of distribution, of pricing, of service, or whatever it may be that's appropriate to that given client? We need the deep, deep actionable nuggets, oh, first deep understandings and then deep actionable nuggets coming out of that. And so as we structure the interview guide, again, we have an hour. We have found that because it's the depth of conversation we're looking for, we need to be disciplined in limiting the number of upfront questions. Because what we want is, oh, Dan, interesting. You said this. Let me understand more about why you said it and what you see the implications. So, again, that's why I have former CMOs on my team doing these, because we need to engage at that executive level. So we limit the the questions to about 30 to 35 anticipated for that given hour to give plenty of room for deep probing. And each interview is going to flow a little bit differently, Dan, based on the reality, the situation of that individual human being that we're speaking with. So there's a lot of organic creativity to conducting that interview and capturing that right amount of data, which then also leads to the next step in the process, which is this is a business strategy. This isn't pure academic research that we're doing. We're looking for actionable output. So therefore, after every five, six hours of interviews, our team will analyze what we're learning, get our client on the phone and say, hey, you know, we are hearing some very interesting things that actually are beginning to counter some of your hypotheses or that are actually a very significant risk to you. Let's talk about it. Let's make changes to the interview guide because we have an opportunity to probe or we have a risk that's really going to bite you that we better develop a new questioning funnel to understand so you can take action uh, immediately if we're confirming these issues. So it's a very organic process in that interview and the data accumulation and gathering process. And then to answer the last part of your question, the actual analytics of it is a very laborious 
we go back, we listen to the recordings, because we ask permission to record, 95% say yes. We listen to the recordings. We have taken detailed notes during the interview, and then we just cross-match those notes and recordings back to the objectives and business strategy to find the learnings, insights, uh, threats, and actions. It's a very laborious, intensive process. The analysis probably takes us five weeks in the course of a given VOC campaign. And technology does not help us get to the depth, unfortunately, get to the depth of data we need. Yeah, it's a fascinating challenge. Very, very, I, I mean, there's so much that you can distill from countless hours of conversation that I think that uh, it, it's, it's really, you, you really have to uh, think very creatively, frankly, about how to iterate upon that interview guide and how to become more clear with your questions to, in order to get to those nuggets, right? I mean, I think it's, it's a fascinating challenge. Uh, but so I, I, we actually I, we have a, a featured project for today that we want I want to go into, which is the the, the work that you did with Mass Mutual. Uh, before I do that, I have one more question about this interview and or the interview guide or the interview tactics that you use. Do you find that the actual act of interviewing a customer, in a sense, biases the information that you can get from them? And how do you solve for that? How do you make sure that you're getting a clean data set when you're incentivizing customers in a certain way to interview with you or when you're asking certain questions? How do you, how do you solve for that bias? I'd just be curious to, to learn a little bit more about that. Terrific question, Dan. And, you know, it's an age-old conundrum facing researchers of any variety, discipline, or stripe. And the answer is you could say, and it can be argued, that someone who chooses to participate in a research, whether it's you know a, a survey monkey, a 4C, a JD, whatever it is, is has a predisposition to share information. So great. You, so yes, that bias at an academic level you can say exists. However, so that's one point, and that can stand depending on how one feels about it. Our view is that. You balance for that, you offset for that by the quantity of of research that you're doing and the horizontal nature of the research that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So as you've done enough studies, you're going to find particular trends. Or as you may find an anomaly or outlier, those are very carefully analyzed to figure out, gee, is this just one unusual person? And that's great, but... They are so far an outlier that it's a nice to know, but it is not something that's actionable, and it is not consistent enough with the rest of the data points and the body of, of data. Now, in terms of sorry, the second part of the question is, in terms of our methodology, yes, we do give people a thank you honoraria because they're spending about an hour and a half of time preparing for the interview, reviewing the interview guide, and then the 60-plus minutes of time with us on the phone. So to be respectful, yes, we, we provide an honoraria, a generally $100 thank you. Um, given the bluntness <laughs> or severity of comments that we hear, if people are not satisfied with the customer experience or brand or product or whatever, just because they're, they're part- so A, they're choosing to participate, B, they're accepting honoraria, but man, it does not in any way yeah, put filters 
on the bluntness of the uh, <laughs> insights that we provide or Interesting. make them eager to please us as interviewers. And that also gets into the way we structure questions, that you can structure a question to get to sort of the answer you'd like. We're very careful to ensure that we are driving blunt questions which are neutral or provocative so we get to real answers as opposed to any kind of bias. That's a great yeah, question. Yeah, well, I guess, when you give some, well, I guess when you give somebody a voice, they're going to tell you exactly how they feel, huh? <laughs> whether that be and, good or bad. And, and yes, you're absolutely right. You're also hearing it in the voice. Uh, you know, sometimes in the Midwest, right, people the are, 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 you know, un unless, uh, you know, unlike us New Yorkers, uh, you know, people in the Midwest can get, are, are very nice and polite. So you've got to work very carefully to the words and tonality is polite, but man, they are unhappy. And you better hear that and probe it because it's not going to be as in your face as if a New Yorker uh, right. was letting you know exactly how they feel about something. So interesting, Arnon. I could go, I could go on for hours with, with uh, learning more about the, 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 those tactics and how you distill that information. I'd love to get into the specific featured project so that we can talk about some examples here, because I think that'll bring a lot of this to life. So we're, today we wanted to discuss uh, improving customer experience with Mass Mutual and the work that you did with them. So maybe... Uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of background as to when that started and what was the nature of the project so that our audience can learn a little bit more about that, and then we'll, we'll dive into specific questions. Sure. So as, as many folks may be aware, Mass Mutual is one of the oldest financial institutions in America. It's over 165 years old. It, it has um, a reputation for financial stability, profitability, and, and also respons social responsibility that is pretty much the envy of, of most financial institutions. So it is a very solid, credible, respected, uh, and profitable organization. And one of the, and we've been working with them now for five years and done a number of VOC efforts, both on the B2B side of the business and the B2C side. And just for folks who may not be familiar with the breadth of products, uh, their offerings range from um, retirement plan uh, administration. So you're working, you're an employee of company X, you have a 401k plan. Those plans are administered by a third-party company for a lot of fiduciary and compliance uh, reasons. And companies like Mass Mutual will work with the CFO, COO, board of directors, treasurer, etc., to set up the management administration of the 401k plan for the employees of that company. So 401k plan administration is a big part of their business. Life insurance, disability, critical illness are additional products. So that's a snapshot of the company in products. The, the challenge that prompted them to come to us was that they were believers in personalization and personas, had spent a significant amount of money in developing personalization strategies based on transaction, what, we don't, what product does somebody have, persona modeling that they've been working on. They have a huge team of uh, metrics and analysts, uh, and also implicit uh, profiling based on these factors of transaction and persona, demographics, etc. And they were frustrated that using those traditional, you know, ought to be working techniques, we're not driving the levels of engagement and responsiveness from millennials who are increasingly, as expected, a larger uh, portion of the workforce. So 
we were asked to conduct voice of customer research, and the one I'll discuss for given this limited time is the consumer side. So going to participants, employees, uh, participating in retirement plans to understand what they were expecting in their relationship with a retirement planning company that is uh, working for their employer. And what we learned was that, and it was particularly pronounced then amongst millennials, is that they are looking for very human needs-based personalization. And um, a quote, which which we um, used to make a number of the strategy cases to the CEO and the executive suite, and this is such a powerful quote, but representative of what we were hearing, you can market laptops and cell phones and Toyota Camrys, but this is my life that you're talking about. I am not looking to be marketed to. I am looking for help in making my specific life decisions. Now, that is a verbatim quote from a consumer. And so it resounded. It was, it was you know, particularly uh, uh, eloquent, as, as many of the, the quotes are from customers, because what it was saying is, um, you know, we're not talking about commodity here. We're not talking toilet paper, uh, paper towel, whatever. We're talking about something significant, which I may or may not understand, and I probably don't understand. But so I'm not looking for marketing. I, I know how much I don't know, and therefore I'm looking for credible, trustworthy guidance, and that guidance has to be specific to me. And so as we probed, so specific to my life decisions, what does that mean for you? What came out of this, Dan? was that the persona modeling that had been developed for that person had almost no relationship to how they defined themselves in terms of Hmm. their understanding of retirement planning, their perception of that category, their perception of how mature or immature or responsible or irresponsible they were, just as human beings, when it comes to this category. And so what evolved, and and I can share just sort of a top line of this, were some human data segments, like, for example, one of them, not me. So um, I'm too young. I'm too healthy. I have no beneficiary. Why in the heck would I want to be putting money aside? It just the concept doesn't make sense. So that, that was what, what evolved from, from all the, the, the way we analyzed the conversations from that group of people. Oh, so we need to have a group identified as n- not me, which means we have to learn how to ask the profiling questions to help bucket those folks, versus what tended to be more of a young male group, which we called I'll Gamble. Hey, I'm a stud. I can go drinking and then get on my motorcycle. I can go drinking, get on my <laughs> snowmobile. Uh, hell, I'm, 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 I mean, words like, hell, I'm a stud. I'm invincible. I'm bulletproof. Why would I spend beer money or toy money on stuff like this? So very male-oriented, very much in the 20s and early 30s. But so that's a very different message than, than not me because I'm too young, healthy, and having a beneficiary. The uh, Another group was should but. Now, the should but hey, I'm overwhelmed with life. Life is so complex. I'm barely hanging on. Uh, There's so many choices. This stuff just keeps getting to me. I feel guilty about it, but I I just can't quite figure it out. Now, Dan, we heard that from 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 
year-olds with kids in college saying, oh, man, I've been beating myself up for decades. I'm paralyzed. Well, I think that's a – that's a particularly interesting point that it wasn't it wasn't segmented by age, right? You discovered that these these particular personas that you distilled from all of the, all the conversations were actually relevant across the board to many different types of customers. It, it Great was point, Dan. It, it was what you were saying. It's 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 a personal. It's a it's a true persona because it goes down to the human component, not necessarily a demographic component. Terrific point. That's exactly so. And the last two categories we ended up calling planner, pays, finance, pays attention to their finances, is very well informed, does a lot of research. Now, that was like, you know, single digit, low single digit percentage of the folks that we interviewed self-identified that way. Clearly, they were women and they tended to span the ages, as you said. But it was interesting here, just like the Isle Gamble tended to be more of a male skew, the planner... Mm-hmm tended to be more of a female skew and interesting had been taught conditioned by their parents from an early age to be this way and then the final category was a very interesting and unexpected one was what we ended up calling taker yep i've got a 401k plan because my employer provides it i've got all this insurance because it's part of my comp plan um do great. So, you know, tell me about it and what decisions do you make every year during the open enrollment period in terms of diversifying or expanding coverage, but, but, but not a freaking right. clue. <laughs> so <laughs> they took it because it was part of the package, did not have a clue. But as we look at these five categories that I can share with you, those aren't personas. Those are human segments with incredible complexity in terms of where they were in the life journey. You know, one of them said, hey, I am not a simple cohort. Yes, I'm newly married, but you know what? I have my husband's family living with us because they're ill and elderly. So am I a young, new household, newly married? Absolutely not. I have significant financial, emotional, caregiving burdens. I, am, I have a very different view on life than you know, a brand new person, a couple married and carefree, happy as hell. So the messaging, the visual imagery, the photography, everything has got to be totally different within each of these human segments. Otherwise, this feeling of, hey, you know, you're going to treat me like a simplistic cartoon cohort. That was another quote that we got. So Mm -hmm. that led, Dan, to a completely different approach to understanding what, learning how to ask the appropriate questions to get people to opt in and state and self-profile who they are, their preferences, their interests. And as we worked on that, went from a uh, 2% baseline response with basically, you know, general messaging to the entire file to moving to truly personalized human data-driven content, imagery, photography, offers, etc., a 10% response, so a five-time increase in response that Mutual tracked across millions of names. So this became yeah. a replicatable, scalable methodology to an, an, a 5x multiplier of, of... So that was the magnitude of increase that Mass Mutual experienced. That's an unbelievable result. I mean, I think that... that uh, 
these human segments are are the key, right? It's 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 combining those human segments then with that other information, that demographic information, and sort of the other data points that we can collect more easily based on the customer profile. Create a really comprehensive view of that customer that can be that can be utilized to tailor the experience, which is the core of what they were asking for to begin with, right? So nice. I, what I would love to what I would love to understand from you is. Let's say we get all of this information, right? And now we have, uh, maybe we don't have a, I guess, specifically with the case of Mass Mutual, what was, what was it from there on that that information was leveraged for? So we, we talked a little bit about tailoring the content, the writing, and the imagery for those particular human segments. Can you give us an example of a program that evolved from that or something else that uh, was done on the marketing front to leverage all that great information? Terrific question. Uh, here's an example that's really cool. <laughs> One of the things we learned um, was that this category, retirement planning, um, was considered to be among the most deadly boring possible for this segment. Like, if you want to talk boring, let's talk about retirement planning or let's talk about life insurance. And so it was a fascinating bit of insight that said, look, I want your help. I want you to engage me, educate me, motivate me. But I got to tell you, this stuff is so darn boring. So <laughs> you've got to find a way to wake me up, to engage, because I got to tell you, if you could just go send me a regular email, um, it ain't going to happen. So when we probed into research, so great, what and how do you want to overcome Mass Mutual to overcome this boredom hurdle? We started getting a trend of suggestions that, hey, make it fun, make it witty, make it kind of hip. And and what does that mean? Well, so what came out of that were recommendations to create edutainment. So educate me in an entertaining way. Why don't you create a talk show? So get some millennials, young, hip folks, men and women, and talking about key issues, but in a fun, hip way. And when we probed what should be the episodes, what should be the topics, we, we, we found uh, 18 to 20 different topics that were really important for millennials. But again, they wouldn't engage with them in a traditional email blast. And so Mass Mutual took that and created a wonderful series called The Smart View. And what we did also in launching that was to pilot the preference-based engagement, got folks to opt in, state their preferences. Right who they were, what they were interested in, and which of those episodes or which of those topics would be of interest. So we could then test an opt-in population versus a control. Where yeah, and inform the content know. and inform the content with that information as well, right? I mean, that's another voice yes. of the customer touch point that you can leverage to, to, to get to what it is that they really want, right? Was exactly. That- was that smart view idea and edutainment, as you as you call it? Was that an idea that came from brainstorming with Mass Mutual directly? Was that an idea that you you your team developed? I guess uh, in in light of the research, how did that how does that come about typically? And what can you tell our listeners about how they can uh, get you know once they collect this information, how do they they make it actionable? You know, uh, is it is it uh, working in a, in a collaborative fashion and brainstorming? What are the tactics that you can recommend to come up with these ah. types of concepts? Because it requires Great question. That's a hard. It's a it's hard to produce content that way, or or, or that 
that goes to both being edu- educational and entertaining, right? So, so how, you know, as an example, how did you get to that idea? And how would you suggest that our listeners get to, to similar ideas of what they can Smart do? Smart question. The idea came from our analysis of the research, and we started seeing a consistent trend of <clears throat> this stuff is born as hell. I'd like to engage, but man, it just it it is so hard. Find a creative way. Okay, how do you how would you want it done? And then we saw a consistent pattern of make it fun, make it engagement, find an untraditional way. And when we probe, what does that mean? They said, hey, make a fun hip um, talk show thing out of it. So that the genesis came from the voice of the customer. And we also were able to probe in the, in the interviews what topics would make this of interest. Wow. So the customers themselves came up with this concept. Yes. Wow. Yes, that's exactly. amazing. It was, it was their solution, you know, with a lot of probing that we were doing. Right. It was their solution for overcoming their boredom factor. Those findings we then put into the strategy doc. We then brainstormed with MassMutual um, this is what we're finding. This is what has been identified. This is the recommended strategy. We brainstormed an action plan, and then they took it, ran with it, developed it. And let me share with you a few metrics that were measured from that SmartView um, program. Uh, the results from the opt-in population versus the control group, 94% higher open rate of the emails from the opt-in population versus the control. A thousand and sixty-two percent higher video viewings of the opt-in population versus the control group, and two metrics that then uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say we really didn't think about when we designed the success KPIs, but are really smart metrics. Um, unsubscribes mm-hmm. across the huge quantities of emails sent out, zero. Zero unsubscribes wow, tracked by MassMutual from the opt-in population. And the other thing, and this was apparently a first for MassMutual, 100% deliverability in the opt-in population because that group made sure to update their email address to the current email, the one that they uh, truly uh, open frequently, and therefore it was remarkable to have achieved 100% deliverability. And, and again, we, did, we hadn't thought of those two metrics, but they're actually very important metrics as you look at going beyond just open rate and uh, video views. So Incredible this is result. just an interesting one of looking at your point of, so what did you do with the learnings? What created content? How was the content? Why was the content? And now the scalability and launch of it in a preference opt-in uh, population versus a control. Yeah, but you know, I, what I love about this example specifically is that you use the voice of the customer methodology to develop the actual content, not only to gather the information, because I think that's a misconception, right? You, you, you assume that you're going to gather this data, then we're all going to go sit around a conference table and come up with ideas that, that's based around that data. But what I love about this example is that you actually determine the program Smart the smart view concept by asking smart questions to the customer and getting to that project with them. So it's truly something that's coming from the customer, which is why you can see those metrics, which is why it's so successful. Dan, you make a very good point with that. Um, let, let me let me build on that for a minute. One of the things that we find 
very frustrating with marketers is this sense that customers don't know what they want or that they will lie or that they will tell you what you want to hear. And, you know, the old thing, if, you know, if Henry Ford had asked customers what they wanted, they would have wanted a faster horse and buggy, never a, 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 a car. And, and look, there may be those instances where people can cite Henry Ford or Steve Jobs as, hey, if he had asked, he sure as hell wouldn't have come up with the iPhone. Uh, you know what? There might be those immortals in the world, like Mr. Ford or Mr. Jobs. But for the rest of us mere mortals, that is an arrogant as hell thing to say that don't trust the customer. They're too ignorant, uninformed, whatever. No. What we have found you know, in, in tens of thousands of hours of VOC research is you ask a broad representative mix of customers the right questions and probed appropriately, right. the brilliance, the actionability, the reasonableness, the efficacy of what they're going to tell you is brilliant as measured by the results as clients implement these strategies. Yeah, so I think there's I'm a certain. Glad you segue to that, Dan. That's a really biggie. Uh, it is a absolutely horror. You know, it is a very bad thing for a marketer to say, "I don't need to ask my customer because I don't trust that they know what they're talking about." That's a really bad. Right, thing. and and I think there's an art. I think there's an art both in asking the right questions and then in listening to the responses in the right way, right? Because you have to, you know, maybe maybe the customer can't. I think the customer knows exactly what they want. They may have trouble articulating it. So you have to specifically, you have to get to that kernel, right? Either through asking the right questions and through listening in the right way, and that's really how you determine the these nuggets, right? Or that's how really you find the nuggets. Nice point. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is also just, yeah, I, I know we have time limitations, but uh, yeah, this is a great conversation we're having because we're sparking off each other. Um, the asking of the appropriate question also has tremendous implications on building a preference-based relationship. And if you're looking to understand and, and get a large segment of your customer base to opt in and tell you their preferences, you have to be very mindful and have done a lot of research in terms of understanding what are the right questions, the appropriate questions to ask a broad customer base in order to engage them to self-profile and give you that rich jewel, which is personal preference and personal profile information? And that's very, it's a science. Most companies do it wrong and, and, and are presumptuous about their right to data because they don't have that, that right. And that's real discipline in learning what are the right questions to ask and at what point of the relationship with the customer to get opt-in preference data for the database. Super fascinating, Ernan. Um, so to wrap up this this uh, featured project, I, I'd ask you, which is something else I was wondering as I was learning more about it, is so you've been working with MassMutual for a long time. Have you always used the same VOC methodology, and how have the findings evolved over the years? What are just in general, I guess, from the responses to the interviews and the conversations that you're having? What are some of the interesting changes that you see? I'd love to wrap up with that question. That's a great question, huh? So the methodology has absolutely evolved over the last, you know, 20 plus years that we've been honing this voice of customer process. You know, we started with this in the late 80s. And over the years, um, we have evolved from having the research be more quantitative in its focus to now where we are now, which is absolutely focusing on the qualitative 
conversation for the points that we discussed earlier, because everyone's got the quantitative. They have the NPS, they have the SAT, they have the whatever, but it is not helping them understand the why do you feel this way, what and how do you want the remedy to be the fix, the correction to be handled. So that's what we are focusing on, and therefore we have evolved to a purely qualitative methodology. So that's been a huge transition in our own process. And I guess the second part of, 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 of at least major secondary element in our evolution has been we used to do uh, 15, 20, maybe 30-minute interviews in the 80s. Uh, and given the complexity of challenges and, frankly, the failure rate of companies to affect uh, truly meaningful personalization customer experience, and unfortunately that's not changed in, you know, as of 2018, um, we, the complexity of those challenges requires the depth of conversation that ends up uh, being at 60 minutes. So we, we have evolved to realize that to give a client the really deep answers and actionability to these complex CX issues, we need a full 60-minute conversation and needs to be conducted by a former CMO. So those are the evolutions in our methodology. Really valuable and interesting lessons to take away from this conversation, Hernan. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, I, I, I wanted to ask one more question before we go, which is a question that we ask all of our guests. <laughs> uh, what does the future of customer experience look like to you? Hmm. The future of customer experience will revolve around using technology like AI to improve the human experience and be subservient to that goal by blending the best of what can be learned through AI and algorithms with a deeper understanding of human data and human self-defined attributes and segmentation and blending the best of what makes us as humans unique and different and delicious and irrational and contrary and all the things that make us humans, understanding and learning how to ask us to, for that information, because again, we can't keep doing implicit data because it hasn't worked well. It has not driven effective personalization. So we need to move to explicit human data-driven personalization Learn how to do that. Learn how to ask it in a non-intrusive, sensitive, and caring way. And then leverage that with the best of what AI and algorithmic data can give us. And also learn where AI is helpful in, if you will, non-essential or non-intimate or highly personalized ways. And there are many, many wonderful solutions for AI there. But not to confuse intimacy and depersonalization with um, let's throw an algorithm against it and we'll be able to scale it and make it cheaper because right. then that's not working the right way. That's, yeah, that's never what I see. The, yeah. Never forgetting the human component there. Exactly. That, that's what I see as, as, as the future of CX. Absolutely. Well, great points. And, and I really do appreciate you taking the time today, Arnon. Thank you so much. It, it was incredibly interesting to hear about 
your work with Mass Mutual and, and, and the voice of the customer methodology to dive into that uh, and, and really get into the tactical details. So I really appreciate all, your, all of your time today. I'm sure our guests will really enjoy this conversation. And uh, to all of you out there listening, keep making moves. <laughs> That's great. And, and also compliments you, Dan. The, the questions that you asked were really smart, and it was a very, very uh, exciting idea exchange for you. So thanks for the invitation. Really appreciate it. Hope we can do it again. Absolutely. Take good care, good luck, and thank you. You too. Take care. You've been listening to CX Insider, SailMove's podcast on customer experience. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. To learn more about how SailMove enables the world's top companies to deliver an in-person customer experience online, please visit SailMove.com.